Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Citizen Chef is a production of iHeartRadio. And then once I got in, Tom, I got hooked. USCA is such a huge place, as we were describing. So you've got every person, every kind of walk of life there. And to me, it's a really interesting puzzle. How do you motivate and move forward a bureaucracy that complex, that large, that geographically dispersed? and get important things done. I like teasing out that problem. Welcome back to Citizen Chef. This season, we're gonna really start digging into not just where you get your food, but how these processes are regulated. There's this big thing out there called the USDA, and I think they have a budget of about 150, 60 billion dollars, and I think there's about 155,000 employees. And it's this, this big, giant governmental entity that regulates pretty much everything that we eat. But I don't, I don't think a whole lot of people understand what the USDA does, why they're there. But if you eat it, most likely the USDA regulates it. I thought the best person to talk to about this was my friend Kathleen Merrigan. So Kathleen Merrigan was the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Agriculture from 2009 to 2013, and she is now the Executive Director at the Sweat Center for Sustainable Food Systems at the Arizona State University. She also started the Know Your Farmer campaign and was also instrumental in working with Michelle Obama on the Let's Move campaign. She's someone who I lean on to get the, the, the sort of real deep policy answers that I'm looking for. So uh, I, I think we're going to ask some questions that include chocolate cake, but uh, more on that later. So please welcome Kathleen Merrigan. Kathleen, how you doing? Things are great. Trying to torture young minds. That's my ah. life. They are um, really interested in food policy. And, you know, we got to change the faces around the table if we want to change policy, Tom. That's my mission. I hear you. My son is graduating very soon with a degree in food policy. Oh, great. Yeah. So, the USDA. All right, I've got all kinds of fun facts for you about USDA. Oh, oh well, good. I mean, it's this massive governmental body. There are 110,000 employees. The budget 
is over $150 billion a year. I think for 10,000 short right now, jobs that are available, anybody listening, they want a job at USDA, apply, they need you. And we describe USDA as a field-based agency, meaning most of the employees are scattered about the states and, in fact, in 99 countries around the world because most of our foreign embassies have ag specialists there um, feeding back intelligence to USDA about what's going on around food and agriculture in country X, Y, and Z. So it's a massive operation. But it's this massive, this, this massive government organization. And yet I don't think the average person has a clue as to what the USDA does and why they should care about what the USDA does. We thought it'd be great to kick off our second season with a primer on the USDA and what it does. And with that, why should the average person care about the USDA? What do they need to know about the USDA? Well, the USDA is the fifth largest government agency. The Secretary of Agriculture is ninth in line to succession of the president, and that's because USDA was the ninth federal government department established. First of all, if you're a taxpayer, I hope I got your attention with some of those numbers. That's one reason to be paying attention. The second reason is if you're a person in rural America, USDA is your home in the federal government because so many of their programs are oriented to rural Americans a lot of the programs have eligibility requirements that make it so that the smallest of communities are first in line for the largesse that USDA has to offer. So if I'm sitting there in rural Kansas, I'm listening to this podcast just because I stumbled upon it, and now someone's telling me I should care about certain policies. What, what are they? Well, like most people think about USDA and they connect it right away to farmers and ranchers. Yes, USDA does a lot with farmers and ranchers, but if you're in a small town, you might be getting money from USDA to help buy an ambulance or a police car. You wait, might wait, be getting for, money. Wait, wait, wait. Money from the USDA to, to buy a police car or an ambulance? Really? Yes. Yes. Um, they help with telemedicine, hospital construction, a lot of rural housing. Um, money loans come from USDA. I know in the Biden uh, announcement about the infrastructure legislation, there's promise of a lot of money for rural, um, just generally water um, infrastructure because of leaded pipes. And I think in the current proposal, most of that money goes to EPA, but USDA is in that business too. They do a lot to help small communities construct water and wastewater systems. They've been involved over decades in the electrification of America. You might say that's work that's been done, but I live here in Arizona just close by to the Navajo Nation, which crosses many states, there's still 50,000 homes on Navajo Nation without running water or electricity, which wow. is one of the reasons why the COVID pandemic was so severe there. With an agency that large, uh, could you break it up into smaller parts? And would that make sense? Or, or uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure if you're the Secretary, <laughs> Secretary of Agriculture, you wouldn't want to do that. But um, would that make sense at all? No, I don't think so, because there are individual agencies within USDA with individual mandates. If you're trying to reorganize, you're already setting up battles. You have to get a lot of new legislation passed. And I say work with what you have and use the time efficiently, because by the time all those reorgs happen, I've been I'm old, Tom, I've been through many. I think by the time you redo all the stationary, reorganize everybody's job titles move the furniture, 
Ah, you're, you're, in the you're end, into I don't it, know if right? it makes a big difference. Yeah. What are some of the agencies that are within the USDA? This is real temptation for me to go on for multiple hours. Well, the biggest agency at USDA is the Forest Service. A lot of people think that's in the Department of Interior where the Park Service is. But actually, USDA has the Forest Service. It's about 35,000 employees. And of course, the last few years have been very involved in wildfire control, forest management. Many people who go skiing on private resort mountains don't realize that that may be Forest Service land. And the Forest Service actually has an office in New York City, for those of you in the big city, where they're looking at trees in urban settings. So it's not just out in the countryside. The USDA has the Food Safety Inspection Service. We have four agencies at USDA that do research. We have research labs across the country. And every five years, one of my favorite things, because I'm a nerd, USDA has a census of agriculture. We do a count of all farmers and ranchers in the country and learn a lot about their operations, all publicly available information. If my memory serves me, you were the one who started the Know Your Farmer program. When I was asked to do that by Secretary Vilsack, most people immediately wanted there to be a staff and an office and have it housed somewhere. And my view was every agency at USDA should find a home for local and regional agriculture. And I didn't want to just put it in one place, but I wanted to challenge every single part of USDA to stand tall and do something important. And in fact, all of the 17 agencies of USDA came forward with really significant programs. For example, the Natural Resources Conservation Service that helps incent farmers to do environmental practices on their land they came forward with a hoop house initiative, a seasonal high tunnel, a way for farmers to extend their growing season that was wildly popular. And the biggest uptake state was Wisconsin, also followed close on the heels by Alaska, where having that ability to extend the growing season actually significantly changed lives. We'll be right back. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. 
Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Welcome back to Citizen Chef. We still have a lot of questions about our food and how we as consumers can better understand the systems in place that get that food to us. Kathleen Merrigan, I think, is the perfect person to demystify what the USDA does and why we should care. So far, you've talked about forestry, you talked about ranchers, you talked about farmers. We haven't heard about what's in it for the people. How does the average person, how do they engage with the USDA? Where do they see it? Obviously, in their taxes, they see it. But where do they see it in the supermarket? Where do they see it in their grocery store? How does it affect them? Now, I know, I think the, the overwhelming largest part of the budget goes to SNAP. Is that is that correct? More, at least more than half. Yeah. Right. And I was deputy secretary in 2010, it was at the high point, and we were feeding about 49 million people through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance right. Program, SNAP. Now it's much more because of the widespread unemployment and chaos in our economy. What's really nice is when the federal government provides SNAP benefits in times of economic distress, people immediately spend that money. And it stimulates the economy sure, more effectively than anything else we know. It's a, it's like a shovel-ready stimulus program. Mm -hmm. But yes, SNAP is the biggest part of USDA's budget. Overall, nutrition assistance is about 80% these days of USDA's budgets. Too often, family will use those dollars to buy the cheapest foods possible. And so th that leads me to ask, how can the USDA make nutritious foods more affordable, more accessible outside of the double bucks program where you can use your food stamps in a farmer's market and get a, a token for double the money that you spent there. Much as I'm a big USDA and federal government champion, change happens outside of Metro DC and it eventually makes it to the halls of power there. And it's really great that we have a, a situation where we have a farm bill every five years or so. And some of the innovations that we see out in the field can become national policy. And you give sure. a good example with the double ups program. Um, you know, uh, the SNAP program is probably the money that people get is too little. Sure. And that makes, um, that they're getting, makes more, they're getting more now. They're getting a little more now, 15% more now. A little now. bit more yeah. now, but um, I think people are ready to reassess the thrifty food plan, yes. which is this analysis in the background that helps determine what the SNAP amount of money should be to allow people to eat a diet consistent with the dietary guidelines for Americans, which right. is also something that USDA is involved in. Right. It's also used for things like uh, to calculate alimony and also to calculate the amount of calories that members of the service should receive as well. So it's not just for snaps. That's right. There are a lot of issues around food access. People get very focused on the cost of food. And I just want huh. to say, you know, we need to put more money into it. But food access is something that we know is really difficult. So if I don't have a car, I'm taking public transport, mm -hmm. I may be doing two jobs, I might be a single mom, you know, I'm going to get all processed food because right. I can't afford to buy fresh food because I can't take that time out of my month multiple times. So there are a lot of different factors that play in. It's a complex 
uh, problem to solve. But we definitely need to get more nutritious food to people. And when people start talking about the budget problem, I just look at what we spend as a nation on healthcare costs. And I say, right. can't we think more in a preventative health mm-hmm. way and understand food as medicine? And if we do, wouldn't we um, put on our green eye shades and see things totally differently? I think right. so. Right. I think that numbers, well, it was a couple of years back, about $200 billion a year on healthcare costs associated to poor diet and, and poor nutrition. So yeah, you'd think. Um, our, our friend Jim McGovern, he's been asking for this for a long time. Uh, I think the voices are starting to be raised. I, I think also Senator Booker is starting to ask for it as well. And that is a, a White House summit on hunger, uh, which we haven't seen since the Nixon administration. Um, what what policies do you think come out of a, a, a summit on hunger? It's, again, it's a, a three-day summit where you will take people from across the spectrum through different agencies making recommendations. What, what kind of policies can come out of a, a, three, a three-day session on hunger that can really help Americans? Well, I think in the year that we've had, the last year and a half, where we've had this national reckoning with our really sordid history on racial justice and social equity, I think I would put those issues front and center. And and we really know that this pandemic is just another exclamation point at the end of the sentence that things are not fair and people are not equally able to survive hardship. And so I would I would probably put that lens on everything. I do want to say Jim McGovern is just about my favorite person in the world. What a champion for everything good in the world. He's the foremost champion of SNAP Mm -hmm. uh, in Congress. Of course, he's got a lot of help with Rosa DeLore and others. And Cory Booker putting out the Justice for Black Farmers Act, Mm -hmm. really impressive, um, reintroduced this year with a lot of co-sponsors, a lot of them on the Senate Agriculture Committee, really saying we have not treated black farmers well. We certainly know from the different lawsuits at USDA, we haven't treated Native Americans well, we haven't treated women well. So we've got a lot to reckon with. A lot of it goes back to equity and justice. The, the calls are pretty strong right now, and there's hopefully you know the, the, the administration is receptive to it. But it's it's about time. I think the last time we had was I think it was 1969, or somewhere in there. And some some good programs came out of it. The SNAP program was modernized. That you know prior to that, you actually had to pay into the SNAP program, and so that was changed. The breakfast program I think was created after that. So good policies came out of it and it worked for some time until the 80s. And then kind of we, we took a step backwards. And, you know, I'm loving now that the last uh, week or so starting to hear stories about how there are fewer people who are hungry now um, because we're actually spending some more money. Well, that's that's the point. Right. That's exactly, that's the that's the goal of spending the money. So fewer people are hungry. There may be a greater sense, sense of empathy for people who are struggling. So I, th- I think we have a good opportunity here. Unfortunately, COVID had to do that. We had to wreck our, our, our you know, our economy for, for so many people and, and go through a pandemic to get there. But, uh, I mean, that could be the, the only one silver lining anyway in this, this whole year that we've, that we've been through. Well, I hope you're, I hope you're right about that, Tom. I know that members of Congress who are very involved in hunger issues oftentimes will pretty much annually issue the SNAP challenge to their colleagues. And they challenge members of Congress to live for a week on what would be a SNAP budget. And I've actually gone to the grocery store with groups of Congress people as they try to shop with their carts, with their budget, and to try to figure it out. So, yeah, people don't really understand what it means to live with food insecurity in this country. And I just remember 
back at the beginning of the Obama administration, there was an outbreak of H1N1, which was a swine flu. And people um, all over the Obama administration were really concerned because schools were closing. And they thought, what about all those kids? And they're not going to have access to school meals. A very valid concern. But I said, you know, where do you think these kids get their meals on the weekends and on school vacations and in the summers? So we have a lot of work to do to make sure children in particular have access to the nutrition they need to become successful adults and contributors to society. We'll be back with more Citizen Chef. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. I'm Tom Colicchio, and I'm talking with my friend Kathleen Merrigan the former Deputy Secretary of Agriculture from 2009 to 2013. How, how, did, you, how did you end up in the USDA? How does one end up as the, the, the number two in this huge agency? Overall, in the federal government, there are about 4,000 political appointees. And of that number, probably about 250 are at USDA. So not a lot of people. And probably of that number, somewhat less than 15 have to go through Senate confirmation as I did. Mm -hmm. So how did I get that job? I ran a little campaign for myself, I suppose. You don't get those jobs because you're sitting in your office waiting for the phone to ring. Kathleen is an advocate for organic farming. She, in fact, wrote the organic bill. So when I was nominated to BC Secretary of Agriculture, for example, people said, Merrigan? She's from Massachusetts. That's not a big ag state. She wrote the organic law. That's not mainstream ag. Right. And she's female. Um, it was mostly a male-dominated sport. In other words, that wasn't the trifecta, Tom. Ha-ha, though I'd say. I was at a school at Tufts, at a graduate school of nutrition, science, and policy. And I said, but I got the nutrition part. And that's a bulk of what USDA resources are spent on. I hate the word czars, but do you think we need a food czar? This idea that we need someone who's focused more on food 
Well, first of all, we probably need a Zarina. That's a personal opinion. (laughs) So um, I think that the calls for having a food czar are positive because to me it reflects the American public's growing interest in food. Where does my food come from? Who produced it? Why should I care? I think that this call, which I know in part our friend Jose Andres has led, this call for a a senior person in the White House to lead a national conversation is all indication that we're going in the right direction. At what point in your life did did you say, well, this this is where my interests are? What sort of got you there? Why would I want to go to USDA? I used to think of it as the evil empire, honestly. And I was always an advocate on the outside fighting for I don't know, truth, justice in the American way, I suppose, <laughs> if, you, if you asked me at the time. And when I was um, on maternity leave with my first child, my nonprofit decided to go under in a way. And I did the thing I never expected to do. I went to USDA and asked for a job. And the deputy secretary at the time, Rich Rominger, was a friend, someone I knew for a million years with working with American Farmland Trust. And he put me in the uh, job as the Agricultural Marketing Service Administrator the last two years of Clinton to oversee the rulemaking on organic food standards, among other things. I do believe, as complex and large as USDA is, that many other federal departments have a role to play in food. The Centers for Disease Control and all their work on obesity within Health and Human Services The Department of Labor has job course centers where they help train people in culinary arts and forest Mm. service. The VA, can you imagine if we got all the hospitals of the Veterans Administration to serve organic or local and regional or better yet, organic local food? What kind of massive change would that mean? It would be huge. It's not just a SNAP program. It's the Women, Infant, Children program, WIC. It's the school meals program, which is not just lunch anymore, but it's breakfast. It's backpack programs on the weekends in some cases. It's summer programs, all of those kind of programs that need to be extended um, because we know there are families who are in hunger. I can go through the whole alphabet soup beyond USDA of these other federal departments and say, hey, what can you do to help transform our food system? So to me, that argues for someone in the White House to be trying to pull the various strings together to help out. So uh, one one thing I have to ask you about, chocolate cake game? Yeah, so Tom, I have all my graduate students play this game, so to speak. It comes from Deborah Stone in a book that she wrote, Policy Paradox. It's really an exercise in trying to understand what is fair. People think fair means equal. No, not Mm -hmm. necessarily. Or that fair is easy to define. Not really. So I would come to class with a very small chocolate cake. And I'd say, how should we divide this cake? What's the most fair proposal? And we'll vote on it. And I'd break people up into small groups. And people come back with ideas like, well, we'll divided up by body mass index and so we won't overload the obese among us or we'll figure out who didn't have lunch so they're the probably the most hungry we'll figure it out in various ways all kinds of fair ways but this is the kicker tom in all the years that i have been using this exercise 
Only once or twice has a group of students come up with a proposal that said, let's share the cake with people outside of the room. Hmm. And I'd say, what about the security guard who makes us safe at the front of the building? What about the homeless people outside our building in Chinatown? What about the kids down the block in the elementary school who may not have sufficient school meals? To me, it was a really important policy lesson. And it said to me, unless we change the faces around the decision-making table to better reflect the demographics of this country, why do we think that things are going to change? Because there are forgotten people who are not being considered when policy is being constructed. They're not getting their slice of the chocolate cake. I really thought that people would think outside of the room, um, but no. And when policies are being constructed in Capitol Hill, in the state legislatures, in the city council, if people are not pushing themselves in the door and confronting policymakers and making the stand about what they need, they're not going to be thought about. And better yet, they need to be represented at the table with full representation rights. Ideally, that's where we get to. But a little exercise, but it's meaningful. What do you see as the biggest threat to our food supply right now? And there's droughts in your neck of the woods where you're living now, <laughs> massive droughts. And what, what's the biggest threat to our, our food supply? Hands down, climate change. Hands down. Yeah. And we all know that time is running out. And I think this pandemic, as devastating as it has been, is like a little blip on the screen compared to what climate change will be. What we didn't touch on is uh, working on food investment. What are you seeing out there in the investment world that really gets you excited right now? Huh. Yeah, it's a great thing for me as a professor because I'm exposed to all the new ideas coming in all the time. There's been this huge investment of capital in ag tech in particular, and I think that's great. I'm really interested in what's going on in robotics. <laughs> I don't think that I've seen a robot that can do as well as a human being, but if there's a way to allow human beings to do other jobs. Oftentimes that's great. All kinds of things going on in the alternative protein world, mm -hmm. even alternative, uh, alternative to leather and cotton. Right. Um, a lot of interesting um, things going on in technology to combat food waste, indoor agriculture, vertical farming, things that allow agriculture to come closer in closer proximity to cities. Right. It's also a hedge against climate change as well. If you're farming indoors, absolutely. Also, you're not using pesticides or you're not using insecticides. Bowery, they recycle about 95% of their water and uh, you don't have to worry about the weather. You're, you're yep, indoors. They don't. But they're getting there. They're, get, they're getting there. I've actually tasted some root vegetables that they've done that have been quite, quite good, actually. Well, we have to, um, we have to count on you, Chef, because <laughs> I personally believe you're only going to get people to, so many people to change their dietary practices because it's good for their personal health. So many people to change because it's good for planetary health. We need the power of deliciousness to yes. really motivate the masses. That's your job. I right. can work on all the uh, wonky USDA stuff, but that's your job. Buddy. Right. And, and that's what was so frustrating about um, 
you know, when I was in the middle of, of labeling and, and GMOs, and I'm, I'm not nearly as opposed to GMOs as some people may think I am. Um, I just want to see them labeled, number one. But can we start breeding stuff for deliciousness? Um, you know, the, the first the first GMO vegetable was that tomato, that flavor saver. And it, it just, it, 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 you don't see it anymore. Why? It was, just, it was horrible. <laughs> it was terrible. And so, yeah, we need to get breeders. I mean, and there are, listen, there are breeders breeding some for, for delicious foods. Uh, in fact, a uh, Chef Dan Barber, his, uh, his seventh row company is doing just that, but is, is doing that. But you're, you're right. Deliciousness will win the day, um, uh, hopefully, except for, you know, my little guy at home who's who's 10, who finds nothing to be delicious. Um, and it's really frustrating. Good luck with that. Let me know if I can help ever. Before we part, anything else that you think that my listeners should know about the USDA? When you're driving around town, Look for the USDA office. Um, they're all over the place, whether it's Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, inspecting product coming across the border to make sure we don't bring in pests, whether it's the park that you're um, hiking in, it could be part of the Forest Service. Look for the USDA sign. And now that you've heard this podcast, maybe your awareness will be raised. Just like sometimes people tell you about something, it's not in your consciousness at all. And once it has and you see it all over the place, maybe now people will be seeing USDA all over and and become USDA nerds just like me. That That's what we're hoping for. <laughs> I don't know if they'll ever get to your level, but just so they understand there's an agency that is there for food safety, um, is is there to make sure that Americans aren't hungry, uh, is there to protect our forests, uh, but that there's this agency that really is there to, to serve the American public and you should understand how it works and, and find ways to interact with it. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully this, this is the beginning of that. Well, Abraham Lincoln, when he established USDA, he called it the People's Department. So, you know, one of my goals as deputy and now even as professor is try to get USDA to open its doors a little bit wider for all of us to partake of what it has to offer. It was the People's Department then. It needs to be the People's Department now. Kathleen, thank you. Pleasure, Tom. So thank you so much again to Kathleen Merrigan for sitting down with us and for her incredible insight into such an important branch of our government. Plenty of what Kathleen and I talked about will be coming up again in the weeks ahead. Most importantly, how we can be the best advocates for a smart food system in ways that go beyond voting with our fork. I, for one, cannot wait to learn more from the all-star lineup of guests we have and uh, hope you will join us. As always, a shout out to A Place at the Table. Citizen Chef was executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis Gabrielle Collins. Our research and writers are Lillian Holman and Jesslyn Shields. Citizen Chef is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows.